Okay, hi, I'm Brady. I'm in uh, Dan and Suzy's home group. Yeah. Shout out right there. <laughs> yeah, get plugged in over there. We need more people. Um, I also started coming here in August, and I feel like I just had the biggest like welcome immediately, and it felt so much like home after my first Sunday. So I feel really blessed to be here, and I'm happy I get to read scripture. Um, so we're going to start in Habakkuk's second prayer, 12 through 20, right? Yep, you read it, All sister. Right. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm a little nervous. Oh, I feel that way every Sunday. <laughs> um, are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incest to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? And the next four verses in chapter two. Habakkuk waits for God's response. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Beautiful. Thanks. 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 <clears throat> so we are in a, you know, my love, we are in a, an exploration of an Old Testament book. We haven't done much by way of exegeting something from the Old Covenant. And uh, this is an extraordinary book that seems so incredibly relevant to the days in which we live. We'll be trying to make sense of the chaos of our time. And uh, we thought this little three-chapter book over about five weeks or so will be a wonderful launching pad for that exploration. And uh, we're doing something else that's different. We are dovetailing. Does anyone have a Bible with Habakkuk in? Here we go. Um, and uh, what we're going to do is, what we have been doing, is two steps. One is we go through Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or something. And on the one week, and then the complementary week, we're looking at the practical outworking of that week. So, for example, two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1, which was Habakkuk's complaint. And then the week after that, we explored what does prayer look like and its ecological diversity, what is the landscape of prayer? Most of us, as we'll see again tonight, have a very narrowed expression of prayer. We kind of find our lane and stick to it when the invitation is to a much broader prayer culture. And uh, that's the rhythm we're in. Now, Super Bowl is messing with that, but hey, who is to say we're not culturally connected? If you are here tonight and you do not know if Jesus is Lord, you're uncertain about the validity of his claims and those of his disciples and the books that have been written about him, both historical in antiquity as well as uh, modern, modern versions. I just want to thank you for being here. 
Um, I know that uh, it costs a lot to come into a room full of strangers. I'll never forget my first time, December 1976. And uh, just being really nervous. I went by myself, and here was this old church building, a little bit more crumbly than this one. And I walked in, and there was a room full of young people, kind of like this. And uh, I just felt so freaked out. I thought, Jesus, if you're real... Why are all these people so happy? Why are all of them singing? I'm a Methodist. We sing the first and the third verses only. And we know when the hymns will appear because they're on a plaque or a, something up there. And this is different. I'm not demeaning Methodism at all. But I want to thank you for being here, even if you're a little uncomfortable with the worship or the style or the informality with which we do what we do. It just is our jam. Thank you for trusting us with your spiritual journey, at least for tonight. And hopefully we can help. Hopefully we can uh, be part of inviting you to someone we love deeply. I, I can say it honestly. Even Merrill has asked me, would you ever want to do anything else? And, and I'm happy. I've been a soldier. I've been a school teacher. Uh, I, I don't mind whatever I do. I just want to know him. I want to grow in intimacy with him. I, I, I want my life to be transformed by the power of the cross, whatever happened there that I don't always understand. So thank you for trusting us. Thank you for being here tonight. So there's kind of three little pieces to this story right here. The first is Habakkuk's second complaint. The second is he, his posture, what he sets himself up to do. And then the third is the beginning of God's reply. And in a few weeks' time, we'll pick up on that. So Habakkuk, or Habakkuk's name means to embrace or to cling to. And what I love about that is this incredible ability that he has to cling to God. David Pawson, the British theologian, said that this story, these three chapters, are actually a 20-year period. I was chatting to John Mark this week, and uh, he's just come to the end of 20 years of ministry, and uh, we're kind of exploring what the future looks like. And I said, John Mark, you've got another... 2 times 20 ahead of you. But could you imagine if for 20 years you have two prayers? For 20 years your heart breaks for your nation. The violence, injustice that you see raging around you is what drives you to pound the door of heaven. Tim Mackey of Bible Project says that the poet lodges a complaint drawing attention to the suffering and injustice in the world, demanding that God does something. And there's an expression of prayer, prayer that I think God is inviting us into. But let's step back for just a moment. I think firstly we come face to face with the harsh reality that God's response offends us. Our friend Alan Hirsch who is an author and kind of a voice in the missional world, uh, he said this, he said, most of us will get to heaven one day. He said, no, all of us will get to heaven one day, and we realize at best 80% of our theology is correct. 20% of our theology is really incorrect. The problem is we don't know which 20%. And so what happens is we begin to create a God in our own image. All of us. We begin to create a God in our own image. Our own image. This is what God does. This is how God does it. This is when God does it. 
And so like Habakkuk, we get incredibly offended when the God we've created doesn't act like the God we created. Every cult and sect is started with a central theological idea. They find a few verses to re uh, reinforce that. And then they take people on a journey. In the 70s, we preached on the streets in Durban, South Africa. Every Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, we were on the streets preaching. Did you ever do that? And uh, Meryl did it. She used to hide. I remember one funny story. We were preaching down at the beachfront, and there were kind of kiddies' pools. And it was a Saturday night, and it was raining. But we were out there with our guitars, trying to cover them from getting all warped and wet. And, and Meryl was in one of those kind of shower cubicles. Yeah. It was kind of a shower cubicle there that you rinse all the sea, off, uh, sea salt off. And um, her and a friend Elaine were kind of hiding away, a little bit embarrassed by the rest of us who are preaching. You were 16, my love. A very mature 16. And uh, I, I don't want to butcher the story, but something to the effect of you were relieved that that night you didn't have to share the gospel with anyone. Something to that effect? So this guy walks in with Marilyn and Elaine and he says to them, what's all this about? It's like you can't escape. And so there they shared the Lord. But there was a guy who started coming onto the streets. And initially we were a little bit confused, young Californian. And then we found out that he was actually part of a movement called the Children of God. Any of you know that movement? And the Children of God's fundamental idea is that God is love, which sounds beautiful right at the outset and is very appealing, especially in such a calamitous, chaotic nation as South Africa was then. The only problem was, that was their central idea, and they found enough verses of Scripture to validate that. I was listening to PBS this week while I was driving, last week actually, and uh, the interviewer interviewed Faith Jones, who's now a successful lawyer, and was the granddaughter of David Berg, who started the children of God. And she escaped. He had... Her dad had two wives, and she was part of, I don't know how many siblings. And she said what they had to do was the notion that God is love, is that you use any and every opportunity you can to share the gospel. So it was expected of them to go to pubs and clubs, sleep with men, under the notion of two things. One was that they would give money to the movement, and two, that they would get converted. That was expected of them. It was also expected of them that any man in the community had the right to sleep with any woman. Now, I've not read the book, which I will, but it indicates this idea that when a central thesis grabs us and we feed it with enough text, we create a God in our own image. Now, pause for a moment. <laughs> what does your God of mine look like? Uh, on, on what basis does he look like that? How many of you have heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Okay, so the Dunning-Kruger effect, as I understand it, and I'm going to read here, it says, it's the cognitive bias whereby people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. So they're not really good, but they're amazed at how good they really are. Some, however who have the opposite. They are high performers, highly knowledgeable in what they do. They have a tendency to underestimate their skills. Now, I think this is true in theology. You've got people who are theologically light. 
who assume their understanding of God is super high. But show me a man or a woman who is studied in the things of God, who invariably has a highly humble theology. Whereby they say, well, I don't really know. This is what I think. A friend of ours, 30-year-old daughter, committed suicide a few, two months ago. And we had to sit with her. And what do you say in that moment? You can't just be glib. You can't just throw away a few theological ideas. Oh, well, maybe Jesus will save her. Or maybe you, you don't always know. Sometimes there's a humility to say, I really don't know. It really doesn't make sense to me. And the problem with Habakkuk is that God didn't fit into his image that he had of God. And folks, it is a highly combative thing for you and for me because subconsciously, and this is why I want this point to be driven hard, is that we are creating a God in our image. What does He look like? Is He like the real thing? And we only know when He offends us. God, how dare you do that? Who do you think you are? Do you think you can just do that? Do you think you can just keep me single? And I'm 40. Do you really think you can do that? I thought you were love. I thought you were committed to me. I thought you gave me promises. What Israel did not do is they did not recognize the error of their ways. And they certainly did not repent. Repent means a decision whereby I change. As Bob Dylan sang in the 80s, I'm going to change my way of thinking. I'm going to give myself a different set of rules. Sorry, baby. David Pawson, who I mentioned earlier on, a British theologian, said something very profound. It kind of stuck in my, in my seat as I listened. He said this, and I'm quoting. He said, when we walk away from God, two things happen. We end in violence and kinky sex. Both abuse people. What was Habakkuk's cry? Oh God, the violence, the injustice, the destruction. Please God, come and save my nation. The problem is the nation would not recognize their sinful ways, nor repent of that. I'll get back to that in just a moment. You doing okay? The second big idea I want to take out of this is the idea of we cannot simply pray with our minds. We were sitting in our home group and Bella, who's here somewhere, asked us about tongues and about praying in the Spirit. And we had a fabulous evening in our home group wrestling through those passages. But my exhortation to you is that we simply cannot pray only with our minds. Our minds are not always our friends. Romans 8, Paul, the great author, entrepreneur, Church planter said this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. If you only pray with your mind, there's a, and me, there is a high probability we'll pray what our flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. You're agitated, anxious, depressed, depressive. Somehow there's a drift from the inner quiet, the shalom of the Holy Spirit, and there's an activation, agitation, because your flesh is trying 
to take legitimate protocol and illegitimize it excessively. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Habakkuk, you are praying in the flesh. You're praying what you see. On the one hand, oh God, oh God, my people, my people, my people. Oh God, oh God, how dare the Babylonians come? He's staying up here. But verse 26 of Romans says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And, and we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Remember last Sunday when Shannon was up here and, and I said to her, Shannon, what did you learn about prayer in India? I told the story of how, spent two years there, of how her host brother was kidnapped. Now I'm sure you understand without being disparaging to the Indian nation of 1.2 billion people, is an incident like that probably will not go very far with the authorities. There's way too much. So what was her host mother's response? She didn't say, well, let's stand together. Please hear me, this is not being disparaging. I'm trying to illustrate this passage. Okay, Father, please bring our boy home. Um, please let those who have kidnapped him, please let them help him or whatever. Thank you. Amen. Uh, what are we having for dinner? Shannon said her host mother went into the bedroom and wailed. Wordless groans. I do not know what to pray. My emotions are flying all over the soul. My mind cannot imagine what they're doing. We don't even know who they are. But what they're doing to my boy, and she wailed, is the word Shannon used. There is a wailing under God, dear friend, that God wants us to get into ever-increasing layers and levels of prayer. It's an invitation. Habakkuk, you're praying with your mind. You're not seeing. That's why God doesn't even answer him. God says, write the revelation down. What's a revelation? As we'll see in just a moment. It's a revealing. It's an unfolding. It's what we do not know with our natural mind. Habakkuk is spending way too much time in his mind. What about praying in tongues? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 1 Corinthians 14, 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Sometimes for me, when I pray, I have to pray in the spirit because my mind's in the way. Went out for a long prayer walk this morning, probably about an hour and a half around the back bay, and I prayed in tongues most of the time. Well, I knew there'd be a hundred plus of you, and how do I know all of you, and how do I know where you are, and what God's doing in your life, and where your struggles and anxieties and doubts and vulnerabilities are, how and why you are limping into this space at this time. I don't know that, but He does. Some of you, the Holy Spirit kind of quickened to my mind. But others, just praying in the Spirit, although my mind feels unfruitful, 
My spirit is bypassing my mind and praying with my heavenly Father or my the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? It's, it speaks about the tongues of men. I think what this means, and I can be wrong, is when we pray a tongue of men, in other words, it's not a, a language we've learnt, but it's a language God gives us in that moment for prophetic intent. We were in Watford, London some years ago. Todd Proctor was with me. And uh, Todd had been had very limited exposure to these kinds of things. And we were doing a pastor's gathering of about 30 church planters from Western Europe. And uh, the one morning we got there and there was a keyboard. I said, Todd, do you mind leading us in worship? And of course it was magnificent. Beautiful worship leader. And uh, Aunt and Helen. Helen walks up to me and she said, Chris, I think I have this tongue. Do you mind if I bring it? I said, no, absolutely. Listen, we're a bunch of pastors. We can cope with this. She says, it sounds a bit Frenchy. So, oh, well, that's cool. Let's, let's, let's do it, you know. So she gets up and she starts prophesying, speaking this thing. Lois, one of my friends who is a French Mauritian who planted in Toronto, Canada, came over to me and he said, my but do you mind if I interpret, no, translate this? Translate it? He translate a tongue. So how much I knew. So he brings the translation. Afterwards, with Todd there, I said, Lois, come here. You said you translated it. What did you hear? He said, you know, I'm French, which I knew. And he said, this gal spoke a very old form of French. Some of it I didn't understand. But from what I could gather, this is what the Lord said to us. That is the tongues of men, I think. It's not learned. It's simply where God gives us. To. I've heard so many stories. A friend of mine was in a meeting uh, many years ago, kind of a charismatic meeting, and there was a tongue spoken. And in the back corner was a monk, and the monk was from someplace in Nepal, in the Himalayas, certainly, and was one of 11 people in the world, if I remember the story clearly, who could speak this ancient dialect. What's that, right? Come, tell us. Stand up, tell us. Remind me. Oh, is that the story? Okay, it happened in our meeting. Um, I don't remember it happened out. It doesn't matter. So, so this tongue goes forth. Amazing how we suddenly get all biblical. And the tongue went forth. Um, and, and a person spoke this tongue. And uh, afterwards, this monk came from the back and he said, can I speak to the person who gave that tongue? And Bethany said, where did you learn to speak that language? Only, was it 11? Six people in the whole world know how to speak that. And the person looked at them confused. Said, you spoke perfect whatever. And this is what God said. The tongues of men. Folks, we live in a supernatural world. We live in a world where God breaks in on us. And He gives us, invites us to know things that aren't knowable to our natural mind. Please don't stay in the realm of the mind. The mind is a, is, is a, is a foundation. It's a firm stone that oftentimes leads to confusion and chaos. But all of us, all of us, myself included, have to bypass that sometimes and let our spirit be in partnership with God and pray in ways we do not naturally no, the tongues of angels, that's when we speak something that isn't interpreted or translated. It's partnering with eternity 
praying things that God prompts us to. So those are the two big ideas I wanted around Habakkuk's complaint. Now, what do we do? I stand at my watch, he says. I station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what you will say to me, what he will say to me, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now, I've heard this preached in all sorts of ways. Let me share with you my thoughts. Hopefully they're helpful and certainly that they're right. Habakkuk is suffering from the fact that God is not submitting to his theological definitions and his sense of divine practice. And so what he does is he positions himself, excuse me, give me my water please, my He positions himself, thank you, <clears throat> on the wall of the city. There are times we feel God is not fair or just. 1985, I think it was, there was a young American preacher who came to our town. He spoke, there was probably a hundred of us at Church of the Good Shepherd. And I'll never forget his message. God is not fair, but he's always right. Irritated me. Of course God is fair. No, he's not. You and your siblings, are you exactly the same? Same intellectual capacity, same emotional capacity, same gifting at sport, music, um, the same interests intellectually, the same body structure? No. God's not fair. See, even in that silence, it's pregnant, isn't it? Because I assumed God was fair. doesn't say it anywhere in the text. But he is always right. I think of my siblings. I'm the, middle, the eldest son of four. Oh my word, the four of us are about as different as can be. See, God's not fair. They could all be like me, they're not. Thanks, Ben. I needed one laugh out of that, and I wasn't getting it. That's another five bucks off your tithe. So, are you with me? Habakkuk is wrestling with what God is saying. So he positions himself on the wall, and he says, How dare you use such violent, unjust, culture-destroying people? I won't say all of that. I've already done that. But he's looking to see how God's going to act out what he says. And can I say this, dear friends, please? This is kind of the high point. God doesn't just threaten. Poor parenting threatens. If you don't sit down now and shut up, I'm going to beat your brains in. The kid knows you're not going to beat their brains in. Sure, I'm going to do whatever I want. If you don't do that now, I'm going to take your iPhone away. No, you won't. I'll throw a tantrum. You won't take my, you don't dare take my iPhone away. The only problem is God isn't a poor parent. And what God says he will do, he will do unless there's repentance and we can change his mind through that. And there is such, and I quote Rob Bell only because he's kind of more known, that whole love wins idea is so fanciful and Cinderella-esque, but it has no basis in Scripture. God says he's going to do this. And he's going to do it. At its most elementary level, it says, What you sow, you shall reap. Introduction 101. Meryl and I watched quite a difficult movie last night, eh, my life? Quite dark. The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie 
Gyllenhaal, is that how you say it? Acted Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, and Ed Harris. And it's about wrestling the tension between self-sacrifice of motherhood and the selfish pursuance of pleasure, personal pleasure. It's hard. Tension. But you pretty soon realize the decisions she makes have consequences. Moving on quickly. Habakkuk positions himself in the walls of the city. Now, I don't know if any of you have been in the military, but you must understand, being on guard duty, and Terry has as well, is a very scary thing. I remember one night I was on duty from 2 o'clock in the morning till 4. The camp's quiet. Stars are shining. You're on your own. Every shadow is a person to kill you. You know that. Every sound is like an echo chamber. A little cricket cricketing. It's like this big beast coming on your imagination. Meryl goes crazy. But you see, what he does is he positions himself on the city wall, not so that he could turn into the city, as so many prophets do, rebuking them. And the watchman in this story is looking outward. and saying, where is the poison? Where is the destruction that's coming from without? And my dear friends, I think this is the most beautiful passage. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the earth or in all the earth. Zechariah, the prophet says, be still before the Lord because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I love that my imagination goes crazy. God sits on his throne of grace. He pushes his throne of grace and he stands up and the angelic hosts go, going to say in the hustle and bustle of our lives and our what five and a half hours or ten and a half hours Paul on our iPhones there's never that and Habakkuk understands that he positions himself to where he can be still John Mark's mother is deaf I don't know how many of you know that it's an incredible story. We should actually have her down, my love, to come and teach sometime. She writes a blog called He Speaks in the Silence every morning. She showed us her place in the morning. She goes to the back garden and there's this place that um, has been set up for her and she turns her hearing aid off. She's completely deaf, but they've now discovered some implant that she can hear a little bit. And her blog, if you open to it, says, I am Diane. Welcome to my quiet corner of the world. I'm a woman learning to listen to God, craving that connection with the Father that comes only through hearing what He has to say to me today. I've been married 37 years with four grown children and a parcel of grandkids. Amazing. I'm a teacher, an author, a blogger, a co-founder of Intentional Parents, a conference for parents whose great hope is to raise passionate Jesus followers. My passionate longing is that as you read these words, you will learn to know His voice. And that you will crave hearing what He has to say just to you. I write so that you too will learn to listen. Because I've learned that. He speaks 
in the silence. Diane had to go through the trauma of losing her hearing in her early 20s. She was a good Jesus girl. Went to youth group, never slept around, never smoked, never drank. How dare God allow her to go deaf? She tells with great sensitivity who wrestle with God. One night they asked the elders to come and lay hands on her. She was 23, am I love her? 22, somewhere in there? A little bit older? Okay. And she says, as the elders prayed for her, James says, are any of you sick call for the elders? And as the elders prayed, she heard a very familiar phrase, Diane, everything will be okay. Because that's what her dad sounded like growing up, Diane. Everything will be okay. And she knew that moment that everything would be okay, but she would never get her hearing back. And even in that space, for the longest time she wrestled, but she writes, I choose to believe that God is good, even though He didn't heal me. That when my life goes wrong and I suffer, He is with me. To join with the prophet to sing, he deals wondrously with us. Even when the wonderful life I expected did not turn out the way I had hoped. Shh, be still. And know that I am God. Shh, be still. The one in heaven rouses himself from his throne. God waits whether we're crying out to Him in elegant devotion or patient, persistent prayer or the raw, harsh language of the critic, He waits until we are silent. There's so much to say and I'm going to land. I'm sorry, we've, there are many things we haven't gotten to. God says, Habakkuk, write down the revelation. I'm praying with my mind. I'm praying what I see. I'm describing the political, social political landscape. Habakkuk, write down the revelation. The word revelation comes from the Latin revelatio. It is a translation into the Greek word apocalypse, which means the removal of a veil so that something can be seen. In the 1400s, the word was revelen, which means to disclose, divulge, make known. Dear friends, God is inviting us into a world of revelation. For me, it's a bit like the kids at Christmas time. And the tree is there and the gifts are all wrapped up together. And then they are invited to open their gifts. I've got the biggest one. No kids peeping. Oh, it's not fair. you got the big gift. They have no idea what's in there. Our mommy's got a small gift. It's only worth 50000 It's a ring. But it's, mommy's got the small one. I've got the big one. See, Revelation is a systematic unfolding of what is there. Write it down. I, I, I land with these comments. Write it down because we prophesy in part. We see through the glass dimly. All right, this is a good place to land. It awaits an appointed time. Now, peeps, can I have a father moment with you? 
It awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will surely come and will not delay. One of the great weaknesses in charismania is the inability to wait. Let the word impregnate us and grow in us. I have sat with way too many people who rush to their revelation. Oh no, God told us we're going to get married. We're going to get married in three months' time. Wait. Wait for the appointed time. Now God's spoken, we're going to go to India. I'm leaving, I'm selling all my goods. Wait for the appointed time. How do I know? Because that's what Meryl and I did. In 1990, we're in Hong Kong, and the Spirit of God, long story, I will not bore you with, the Spirit of God says to me, to us, you will spend the rest of your days abroad. That's the prophetic word. We go back to South Africa, we call my family in, we call Merrill's family in, we tell them the Lord has spoken, we're going to spend the rest of, the, of our days abroad, and of course we add to the prophecy. We're going to plant in Hong Kong. Family orienteers, now I look at the church, and, and we had an eldership, all of whom planted out. Every one of them became church planters somewhere in the world. And so now I'm thinking to myself, is it going to be Nigel or Ashley? Leon or... Uh, gosh, my mind's gone blank on all of them. Well, a couple of things happened. The first was this. Nothing happened. For six years, nothing happened. I beat... The door of heaven. It was a church, honestly, of a thousand people just like you. Because I was your age. I was 32. For six years, nothing happened. If I had in my haste appointed someone to take over the church, and we moved to Hong Kong, it would have blown the church out of the water. One by one, secondly, God planted these men out. Nigel came to me and said, I've got to plant in London. Ash came to me and said, I've got to go and plant in Pretoria. Leon came to me and said, I've got to plant in Brisbane, Australia. Um, I don't know, help me, Terry. I watched God move them. Meryl said to me, Rory Dyer. Rory was a crazy, nutty kid. He was 22. It's a church of a thousand people. And Meryl says to me, babe, you're missing it. It's Rory. I said, it's not. He's young. He's obnoxious. He's loud. He's overbearing. And I love him to bits. One of my best friends. And it's like, oh, I said, okay. One moved, another moved, another moved, another moved. And it was almost like the last man standing. And God said, now do you believe me? Now do you believe me? Six years later, or just before that, I'm in a hotel in Taichung, Taiwan. I'm speaking at a conference. And I'm literally on my knees in this hotel room. And uh, I'm crying out to God, God, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? And eventually, I think in frustration, he just stops and he says, son, you're asking the wrong question. What? He said, it's not where, it's to whom. To whom are you sending me? And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I, and I was on my knees next to my bed. And I laid my hands on the bed like this, and I said, Lord, to whomever you send me, us. I needed to get there. 
because we came to a very broken Pentecostal church that's now in Brea called Southlands. I left a church that was in their early 30s and average age. This was a church in its average age of about 50. These were all young, educated, creative, artistic kids. They were plumbers, electricians. See, I would never have said, that's a really good fit for me. The only cut I ever got is a paper cut. You know, I never fix things and do things. And God waited till I was ready. Till I had surrendered my understanding of you will spend the rest of your days abroad. And then he said, okay, this is where I'm sending you. And for 14 years, Meryl and I with a team put Humpty Dumpty back together. She's beautiful today. If you've ever been to Southlands, you'll know what I'm talking about. She is beautiful today. But I had to get to the place where I did not finish the prophetic word. I did not craft what it needed to look like on a, not a dirty hotel floor. It certainly wasn't the fanciest in Taichung, Taiwan. city I struggled to be in. To whom? I said, to whomever. The vision waits an appointed time, dear friends. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. We know that it's talking about the Babylonians. We know that it's talking about Jesus. But prophetic application for us is though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Would you close your eyes, please? Thank you for being so gracious. Thank you for listening so well. I'm very honored. I just want to say three things quickly as we respond. Ty, can I have you and a couple of the voices up here just to minister to us? One, adopt a posture of humility because our knowledge of God is insufficient. Please don't be arrogant. Please don't be the uneducated who thinks more highly of themselves. I was my cardiologist this past week, and I said to him, look, doc, you know that there are people praying for me in my heart. He said, oh, I believe in prayer. And about two minutes later, he said, you know, like it said, God helps those who help themselves. And I thought, you have no clue what you're talking about, do you? There is a posture of humility. Oh, God, I want to know you more. I don't want to live in the deception that what I know is you. You are magnificent. You are beautiful. You are beyond description. You are righteous and you are true. You are almighty. You are ever-present. You are all-knowing. This is who you are. You are judge and dispenser of grace. This is who you are. Secondly, I want to ask every one of us to spend at least 10 minutes every day this week Listening. No phone, no book, no Bible, no computer. Sorry, my love. Oh, just listening. Be still. The Lord is roused. He's standing up. He's pushing his throne back. He speaks in the silence. God, I can't hear you. It's because you're too loud. Shh. And 
I don't know to whom my story, our story of Hong Kong is relevant. Please hear. We are moving to Hong Kong to plant a church. No, you're not. You're moving to America to heal a broken church. I got it so badly wrong. Just put your hands on your laps if you don't mind. It's one of my favorite things that Todd does. So, Caden, you can tell your pops. So, I just sing over us and let God the Holy Spirit minister as we are seated. We're almost done.